Welcome to the fourth installment of Beyond Journal Club, a collaboration between CoreIM and NEJM Group. The goal of Beyond Journal Club is to take landmark clinical trials and put them into context, telling the story of how we got to where we are and what it means for how we take care of patients. And today, we're discussing a topic that's somehow become politically charged over the last couple of years. We're talking vaccines and vaccination. I'm Dr. Ann Chung, an editorial fellow at the New England Journal of Medicine and a pediatric hospitalist at Tufts Medical Center with a background in vaccine development. I'm Dr. Greg Katz, a cardiologist at NYU. And I'm Dr. Clem Lee, a former fellow and current guest editor at the New England Journal of Medicine. Today, we're going to talk about the Renroran RSV trials, which were published in the February 22nd and April 5th issues of the New England Journal of Medicine in 2023. These trials were the ones that led to the FDA's approval of GSK's RXV and Pfizer's Abrisbo vaccines for the 2023-2024 respiratory season. And just to make it clear, yes, you heard that right. One of the RSV trials is called RSV, spelled A-R-E-S-V-I, and the virus is obviously also called RSV, spelled R-S-N-V. So that's a pretty convenient way to name the trial after the virus, but it's not so convenient when you're doing a podcast talking about both of them. So nomenclature aside, I'm getting tons of questions from my patients about these new RSV vaccines as they're bombarded with direct-to-consumer advertising and tons of media coverage. And somehow a lot of my patients are a little bit vaccine hesitant, and so there's plenty of questions about side effects and efficacy. Yeah, I've noticed that too, Greg. Vaccines have become a bigger issue for all of our patients since the pandemic, and it's not just the RSV vaccine. So interpreting trials like the RSV trial and the Renora trial bring up bigger questions about vaccine trials in general. Questions like, how do we evaluate the efficacy? Or how do we capture short and long-term side effects? And how does a vaccination impact transmission? Or does it even do that? Or even something seemingly so straightforward, like what's the right placebo to test against a vaccine? So with all those questions in mind, we're going to start first with a discussion on RSV and how hard it was to develop an RSV vaccine. Next, we'll get a bit meta with a dive into how to think about the design and interpretation of vaccine trials. And finally, we're going to do a deep dive into Renoir and RSV trials to help busy doctors figure out if it's worth spending five minutes of a 15-minute visit to talk with patients about getting the RSV vaccine. Just a quick word from our sponsor, Pathway. Have you ever felt overwhelmed trying to keep up with the latest in medicine? There are piles of journals and latest research you just haven't gotten to. I've definitely been there before, and that's where Pathway can be a game changer. Pathway is a new clinical decision support tool that wants to empower clinicians to make evidence-based decisions quickly and efficiently. So like for this episode, I was looking up the RSV trial and I was pretty impressed how easy it was to get the gist of the trial. Often they'll have this like money figure with a number needed to treat, which is always helpful. Best of all, Pathway is absolutely free, really leveling that playing field regardless of your budget. And if you want more, there's a premium version with unlimited CME credits for every search or article and even more powerful features to level up your practice. So why wait? Download the free Pathway app either through coreampodcast.com backslash pathway or click on the link in the show notes. Elevate your practice. I know it's elevated mine. I'll just keep a tab open and look up things that come up and see if there's any relevant trials related to that topic since it's so user-friendly and at no cost. Give Pathway a try for yourself and click on the link in the show notes. You know what, guys? As a pediatrician, I was surprised to hear that older adults need an RSV vaccine, since RSV is classically referred to as a pediatric disease. Yeah, I had to do some digging, and at least according to the CDC, hospitalizations for adults over 65 years may be as much as double as that in kids. That really shocked me. 
And RSV kills around 40 times as many people over 65 as it does children. So we're talking about 8,000 older folks dying from RSV every year compared to around 200 kids. Those numbers make sense. You know, there's way more elderly people in the U.S. than there are children under five. And if the past few years have taught me anything, it's that older folks tend to be more susceptible to getting really ill from a respiratory viral infection. Totally, Greg. And just like any other virus, when it comes to RSV, prior infection doesn't always mean complete immunity. Yeah, that reminds me of the fact that by the age of five, essentially 100% of the population is seropositive for RSV. And those stats about the morbidity and mortality of RSV in older adults suggest that their immunity wanes and that they might benefit from vaccination. Hmm, really good point, Clem. That said, the march to developing an RSV vaccine has been slow and filled with setbacks. Yeah, let's take a look at the ups and downs in the development of RSV vaccine. So attempts to make an RSV vaccine started pretty soon after the two strains, A and B, were discovered back in the 1950s. So the Renoir and RSV trials were actually more than 60 years in the making. Wow, that's a long time. RSV proved to be a pretty tough nut to crack. Um, Even though we had successful and safe vaccines against other diseases like the flu, polio, measles, and mumps since the 1960s, the initial RSV vaccines weren't as wonderful. Those initial RSV vaccines developed in the 60s induced an immune response that wasn't really protective. And so when vaccinated children had their first natural RSV exposure, some kids have developed really severe illness. This tragically led to the deaths of two RSV-naive toddlers, which was caused by antibody-dependent enhancement from the vaccine. And unfortunately, that held up further RSV vaccine development for years. And for decades, the problem with the RSV vaccine came down to the F glycoprotein, which is a protein that allows the virus to enter into cells. This F glycoprotein fuses with human cells and then changes shape. So all of those original vaccines had been focused on the post-fusion shape, but the circulating virus is in a pre-fusion conformation. And so those original vaccines didn't neutralize it, which means they couldn't prevent it from causing infection. So the key was to figure out the pre-fusion shape so the antibodies could neutralize RSV before the virus entered the cells. Unlocking that pre-fusion shape of the F-glycoprotein enabled development of a vaccine that would produce antibodies that neutralize the virus. So the secret here was to lock the F-protein in the pre-fusion state, which prevented infection. Definitely. And getting a better understanding of the biology allowed for rapid vaccine development, with the first small clinical trial starting in 2017 and progressing through the different phases until 2023 brought us the Renmar and RSV trials. Those initial phases brought a lot of optimism that these vaccines would be safer than the initial generation. But successful vaccine trials need to demonstrate real-world efficacy and not just biologic plausibility if they're going to lead to approval. Yeah, so before we dive into the details of the RSV and Renmar trials, Let's set some groundwork about the factors that make any vaccine trial good. You know, guys, I trained in both medicine and pediatrics, and until recently, I'll be honest, understanding vaccine trial design always seemed much more in the purview of pediatrics than medicine. Yeah, I never really paid too much attention about vaccine trial design because it just didn't seem relevant to my practice as a cardiologist. Unfortunately, a worldwide pandemic came along and made it way more important for those of us trained only in adult medicine to understand more about vaccine trial design. Okay, so as the person with a background in vaccine development, just to start, I think it'll be helpful to think about what makes a vaccine trial different from other clinical trials we're used to interpreting. Yeah, I'm glad you're here with us on this journey, Anne, to teach us. Vaccine trials don't seem all that complicated, but let's talk about what makes them special. So we're going to discuss... One, what's the best way to pick a placebo to evaluate vaccine efficacy? Two, what are the best endpoints for a vaccine trial? Three, 
what can we learn, if anything, about community transmission? And lastly, number four, how do we evaluate vaccine side effects? Okay, so starting with placebo, we should know that the vaccine contains both the vaccine substrate itself as well as adjuvant compounds. These adjuvant compounds stimulate the immune response, which brings us to the question of what the best placebo is. Yeah, should the placebo just be saline? Because then what you're actually studying is the vaccine with its adjuvant compounds. Or should the placebo include the adjuvant, which means you're studying the vaccine by itself? Great question. There are pros and cons to each option, since what you choose for a placebo can impact your results, both in terms of efficacy and in terms of side effects. Remember, adjuvants used in these vaccines can induce cytokine release, which can protect against disease. So a placebo containing an adjuvant, that adjuvant in the placebo will produce cytokine response as well, and so the intervention arm may look less efficacious. But on the flip side, the vaccine side effect profile will look like it's better tolerated because some of those side effects are caused by the adjuvant. Totally, Clem. But on the other hand, if you leave the adjuvant out of the placebo, that makes your vaccine look more efficacious. And so to recap, a saline placebo makes a vaccine look more efficacious, but with more side effects. An adjuvant placebo might make a vaccine look less efficacious, but with a more favorable side effect profile. Either approach here is reasonable, but we need to be mindful of the placebo choice when we're interpreting the results of the trial. And just like choosing the right placebo can be complicated, measuring the results of a vaccine trial can also be challenging. So some vaccine trials look at confirmed cases of disease, while others look at a surrogate marker, like antibody levels. Whether or not antibody titers are a reasonable surrogate really depends on the virus in question. After all, I'm pretty sure none of my patients care what their antibody levels are. They only care if they're protected against disease. And so antibodies are only going to be useful if we have real confidence that those titers are truly a reliable marker of protection against either symptomatic disease or asymptomatic disease transmission. For sure. Just putting it into perspective, when it comes to the flu, antibody titers seem to correlate with disease protection and serves as the basis for the annual updated flu vaccine approval process by the FDA. So for a new vaccine where we just don't have that correlation data, the antibody levels just aren't going to cut it. Right. So swinging back to RSV, it's not just antibody levels you can look at. There are other markers of a disease, like confirmed RSV infections, all symptomatic respiratory infections, including RSV, different degrees of severity of RSV, even ICU emissions are all cause mortality. Well, from a patient perspective, I guess you could argue that it would be better just to measure all respiratory infections, right? Because why would I as a patient care if my specific infection is from RSV or from a different virus? Yeah, but if I'm a vaccine manufacturer, that is a way harder sell in trial design. An RSV-specific outcome is going to make a vaccine look more effective. But you compare that to an outcome that focuses on severe infections, like hospitalizations, mechanical ventilation, or death, that's going to require a huge sample size to achieve adequate power if we're going to capture a difference. So it ends up being kind of impractical or just way too expensive to study those really severe markers of disease. Yeah, that makes sense. If we're focused on an RSV-specific outcome, that means we are going to need to be able to detect the disease. And is there any concern that vaccinated individuals might be able to get sick with the bug but are less likely to have a positive test? That's a good question, Clem. In theory, yes, that's possible. But in general, more severe cases lead to more viral shedding. So there's a lower chance of a false negative. So as long as we're looking at severe cases, we should be able to catch an effect and not need to worry about the possible lower sensitivity of case detection in vaccinated individuals. That makes sense. And to continue our general look at vaccine trials, I think it's time for us to confront one of the major controversies we saw with the COVID vaccines. How do you figure out if a vaccine reduces disease transmission? Another great question, Greg. 
Studying disease transmission is the type of thing that isn't going to be captured well with trials that are just focused on individual participants. To get high-quality data on transmission, you're going to need to measure overall cases in the community or do a cluster randomized trial where you randomize geographic cohorts rather than individuals. So community case detection is particularly hard for RSV because the vast majority of adults aren't going to get particularly sick from it. The most symptomatic people tend to be the youngest, like babies, and the oldest. So while the ones in the middle are going to be responsible for the largest number of cases, they are also least likely to come to medical attention and are hard to capture in a trial. It seems to me like assessing a vaccine's impact on transmission is going to be logistically quite challenging and also super expensive. And so while it's definitely a nice to have on my wish list for the ideal vaccine trial, we'll still be able to interpret efficacy for an individual with the disease in question without knowing anything about disease transmission. Okay, that's a pretty good run through on vaccine trial design. To recap on the things we want you to take away, a high quality vaccine trial can either use a saline or an adjuvant placebo. For a new vaccine, it's better to measure a hard outcome like infections over a surrogate outcome like antibody titers. Looking at RSV-specific infections rather than general respiratory tract infections is going to be more practical. And we're pretty unlikely to get anything useful from vaccine trials and transmission, where there's a variable degree of severity of infection. Okay, so now that we've gone through how to evaluate a vaccine trial with Anne's help, we're equipped to discuss the RSV and Renora trials. All right, so both the RSV and Renora trials had similar study designs. They were double-blinded, randomized, and placebo-controlled. Yeah, and the inclusion criteria were pretty broad for both trials. They included adults over age 60 with stable chronic medical conditions. Neither trial permitted any other vaccines in the two weeks before the intervention. The RSV trial enrolled over 24,000 participants and Renoir over 34,000, and half of each group received the vaccine and the other half placebo. The RSV group studied a vaccine containing a single RSV antigen plus an adjuvant, and that was compared to a saline placebo. And the vaccine studied in the Renoir trial contained antigens for both A and B strains of RSV, but no adjuvant. So the placebo in this trial was freeze-dried so that it matched the vaccine in appearance. So both trials used a saline placebo. And as we mentioned earlier, a saline placebo can make a vaccine look more efficacious compared to an adjuvant-only placebo. Right, Greg. And along that same line, the investigators in both groups measured efficacy with a similar outcome, confirmed RSV, lower respiratory tract infection. Yeah, they were pretty strict about what qualified as an infection. Participants needed to have at least two symptoms lasting at least 24 hours and then have a test for RSV to confirm that infection. The two trials had slightly different protocols for the specifics of nasal swabbing and symptom reporting, but the overall effect was the same. I think it was a robust way to look for respiratory infections and RSV specifically. And I was pleased to see the investigators chose real endpoints of confirmed disease rather than just antibody levels. And while I think we all would have preferred to look at all respiratory infections rather than just confirmed RSV-specific infections, it's reasonable for an RSV vaccine study to look only at confirmed RSV infections. Yeah, and the measurement of safety was also rigorous. Participants in both trials kept journals for about the first week after vaccination and were questioned about side effects up to 30 days afterwards. Totally. And overall, I feel pretty comfortable that they had an effective way of monitoring both efficacy and safety, especially since the history of vaccination against other viral infections tells us that the majority of vaccine adverse effects occur in the first 7 to 10 days after vaccine administration. And the moment we've all been waiting for, onto the results. So it looks like both vaccines look pretty good. 
It's a long kind of like drum roll for sort of like a generic response about what the trials look like. So the way that these results are reported in the trials is as a percent efficacy, which is basically just a ratio between infections in the vaccination arm versus infections in the placebo arm. So if there's one infection in the vaccine group and three in the control group, then you get an efficacy of 66.7% since the vaccine prevented two out of three infections compared to the placebo. Thanks for going over that, Greg. Just going to the RSV trial, the overall efficacy was about 83% for all RSV-related lower respiratory tract infections and 94% for severe infections. Subgroup analysis looked pretty similar across the board, whether you looked at protection against either RSV strain, age range of the participants, and risk profile for the groups. It really doesn't matter how you slice it, the RSV vaccine looked pretty efficacious. Yeah, the Renoir trial told a similar story. 67% efficacy against RSV-related lower respiratory infection with two or more symptoms and 86% efficacy if you look at people reporting three or more symptoms. So before we all get just way too excited about those impressive-sounding efficacy numbers, we all should just zoom in and take a look at how small those total number of infections were. 17 patients in the RSV trial and 14 patients in the Renoir trial had severe infections. So only about one patient out of 1,000 in the placebo groups developed an RSV-confirmed infection. So based on that, What's my level of confidence that these vaccines prevent hospitalization or save lives with numbers this small? It's really not all that high. Wow. That really puts the results into perspective, Greg. But that being said, what about safety? Yeah, I think that's a question that all of our patients are going to have. The safety signal for the big stuff looks pretty good. There's no sign of increased rate of severe illness, fatal events, or anything super scary. Totally. And you'd expect local reactions to look worse in the vaccine groups, of course, which both studies found. Serious or systemic reactions weren't that different in the Renmore trial, but the RSV group had a signal towards higher events of fever and systemic symptoms. Overall, numbers were pretty reassuring, with about a third of people reporting things like myalgias and fatigue. So Renoir studied about 17,000 patients, and RSV trial closer to 12,000. So I wouldn't necessarily feel like I understand all of the rare side effects. But the overall safety profile in both of these studies makes me look at the RSV vaccines very similarly to how I think about a flu shot fair chance of mild side effects with a safety profile that's pretty reassuring overall. For sure. And the history of vaccine trials tells us that we'll know the common side effects through a trial enrolling a few thousand people. But we won't know the rare side effects until the vaccine is more widely distributed, probably until it's been given to hundreds of thousands or even millions of people. I'll be particularly interested to see the risk of Guillain-Barre. Putting in perspective, two patients in the Renoir trial did develop GBS, but these numbers are way too small to draw any conclusions. Yeah, I'd like to bring up another point, which is if you look at the Kaplan-Meier curves, it does seem that the protection wanes as the trials went on. And the curves separate, but then there's a plateau in both groups seven months after. So while that's probably just a sign of the natural season of RSV, there is the possibility that there's waning immunity over time, but I think it's too soon to say too much about this. And so even with those caveats about the long term, I do think it's safe to say that the top line results look pretty good so far. I definitely agree. So just to summarize, both the RSV and Renoir trials showed pretty good vaccine efficacy, over 80% for severe disease in adults over the age of 60, with an overall pretty reassuring side effect profile. So what's a busy primary care doctor supposed to take away from these trials? Are the RSV vaccines good enough to take time out to recommend during a busy clinic day? Yeah, I think it sort of depends. I mean, on one hand, you can make an easy case for recommending the vaccine widely, right? Like a lot of people die from RSV, 
these vaccines seem to protect older folks against severe illness with a reassuring side effect profile. But on the other hand, with the small numbers of cases that we saw in the trials, I don't think any of us are super confident that these vaccines are particularly life-saving. I would also caveat that the safety profile is pretty well established in older adults, but we don't know what that means for other demographic groups. This makes me think about the myocarditis in young men that we saw with widespread rollout of the mRNA COVID vaccines. When we're considering making recommendations to our patients, we need to be thoughtful both about who the trials apply to, but also who they don't apply to. That's totally right, Greg. But I'd at least take some comfort that this isn't a novel vaccine delivery system. With COVID, the mRNA vaccines were completely new. Providing an antigen like the RSV in Renar trials is a similar type of vaccine delivery system, just like hepatitis B, HPV, and tetanus diphtheria pertussis. So there's a bit more comfort that we understand its safety. That said, the New England Journal of Medicine recently published a phase 2-3 to three trial testing vaccine efficacy and safety of an RSV mRNA vaccine, which was sponsored by Moderna, and that had similar efficacy as the vaccines from the RSV and Renoir trials. Whenever I'm thinking about a new intervention, I'm always wondering about the unknown unknowns. What don't we know that we don't know? In the case of the RSV vaccines, I think the biggest outstanding questions in my mind are durability and applicability. So does this vaccine last more than a single winter? Or will younger individuals like kids or the immunocompromised have a similar risk-benefit profile? Um, and so questions like, will we be recommending boosters will be unanswered for a while. And we also haven't learned anything here about the impact of these vaccines on disease transmission. And so while that's the inevitable limitation of a trial that doesn't track community cases and isn't organized in a cluster randomized design, I do think that the lack of information on transmission is an important gap in our understanding when it comes to counseling our patients or thinking about making more broad recommendations. For sure, Greg. And that said, though, for our older patients who are at greater risk for serious problems from respiratory viruses, the RSV vaccines seem like a pretty easy win. So I think that you're right, but I'm always going to be a little bit of a pain here by pointing out that it would be great if we saw high-quality data on the outcomes that my patients care most about. I'm talking about things like hospitalizations, intubations, ICU visits, all-cause mortality. But I agree with you that for older folks, this does seem like a pretty reasonable recommendation to make. I think for me, it does come down to who the patient in front of me is. If I were a 65-year-old man with no health problems, I'm not sure I would go for the vaccine. I don't have data that it reduces hospitalizations or death, and I would be a little wary of the signal for Guillain-Barre, which is potentially life-threatening. But if I were a 65-year-old smoker with COPD, lung cancer, frailty, and if I got the RSV, it could kill me. I think the calculus changes and I would take the small risk of GBS. And in the meantime, at least we can feel pretty comfortable that post-market surveillance for a vaccine is really robust. The CDC spends millions and millions annually on their vaccine safety data link, which provides us with a much higher likelihood of seeing a signal for harm than we'd ever get from a drug after it goes into the market. So we'll get the common side effects from the initial trials, but the more rare side effects don't show up until the vaccine is approved and out there in the real world. It sounds like a scary method until you you realize that it's actually a totally reasonable compromise. Get something out there to the vulnerable population once we have a good understanding of the efficacy and the major side effect profile, and then use robust post-market surveillance to capture a signal for any rare side effects. Right. Now that we're coming to a close, I feel good that we've talked about some of the general aspects of vaccine trial design and seen that both the RSV and Renoir trials have a lot of strengths, so we can feel pretty confident about their results. Yeah, I also feel good about future vaccine trials in general now that I'm equipped to look at them with a more analytic eye. 
I also encourage all pediatricians and internists, looking at you, Greg, to do the same so that we are prepared to have these nuanced discussions with our patients. I'm certainly more ready to do that. And so there you have it. This is in the fourth edition of Beyond Journal Club with NEJM Group. And that is a wrap for today. If you found this episode helpful, please share it with your team and colleagues and give it a rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. It really does help people find us. And if you have any feedback, please email us at hello at coreimpodcast.com. Opinions expressed are our own and do not represent the opinions of any affiliated institutions. And the Renoir trial told a similar story. 60% eh, studied in the Renoir trial. Ugh, that's such a hard word to say. Renoir. Renoir trial. Mike, not a French you can major, tell, I guess. Yeah. I didn't take French. <laughs> I didn't take French in high school. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.